Welcome to the Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Well, thanks again for joining us. Um, today's conversation is one that I think will be captivating to a lot of people, and the reason for that may come from a negative place. We're going to talk today about mental illness, and the framework that we're going to use to have this conversation is the same one that spurs this conversation seemingly anytime it comes up, and that's some sort of a tragic event, and people pointing to mental illness and mental health as a whole as the cause for that tragic event. We are being joined today, I should start with that, by uh, Lisa Munoz, who is the Executive Director of Medical Simulation here. And she also teaches uh, mental health first aid classes. And she has a whole bunch of really important pieces that make her qualified to have a conversation like this, but possibly the most captivating and one of the reasons that we had her in was because Lisa was unfortunate enough to be one of about 22,000 people in the crowd in the Las Vegas country concert that ended in the death of 58 people um, in what was the worst mass shooting in American history. So in the wake of these tragedies, including the, the Texas shooting just a few days ago, the comments often seem to be, this isn't a gun issue, this is a mental health issue. And we need to have a conversation on mental health is what the people who are being interviewed say as a fix to this problem. Mm -hmm. But it seems that that's where the conversation ends every time. Yeah. They say that we really need to have this conversation and it's kind of like, it's kind of like when you're, you see someone you're like, we should hang out sometime, but then you like never actually schedule anything. I feel like it's the same sort of thing where it's like, we should talk about that, but then it never gets brought up until the next tragic thing happens. And we're like, oh, it's definitely a mental health issue. And I feel like there's just so much in misinformation because nobody actually ever talks about it. Yeah. What happens too, and especially in talking to Lisa and gaining a deeper understanding of this, is when the conversation mental health comes up, Again, it seems to only come up in these situations, and by relating them directly to these terrible events of mass shootings and mass casualty events, you assume that mental illness is the person who's committing this atrocity is the person who's mentally ill. Mm -hmm. So when you think about somebody who's mentally ill, you think about a monster. You think about somebody who's capable of hurting unnumbered, uh, who knows how many people, and they're doing it for no reason whatsoever. And what that does ultimately is it keeps people who really suffer from forms of mental illness that so many suffer from, from ever seeking help, because there's this stigma that if you have mental illness, you're dangerous and you're violent and I don't want to be around you. And I think that that stigma is something that's very, very real in American society. Mm -hmm. So hopefully by having this conversation, it was strange in framing this podcast because it almost felt like some sort of a trick because people are going to tune into the news when there's, if the leading story is 58 people killed in Las Vegas, there's going to be a, a heavy viewership to a story like that because it's captivating. It's 
in a terrible way, it's exciting. It's what people are going to watch TV for because they get to witness this terrible tragedy carry out in front of them. And all these questions, of course, come up. But what won't gain viewership, I can almost guarantee, is if the news said, tonight we're going to talk about mental health in America. Mm -hmm. They're probably not going to have many viewers. Unless they said something along the lines of like split personalities and, you know, um, schizophrenia and those kinds of things that are so misunderstood by society as a whole that they sound exciting. And um, I think people often think of what Hollywood has turned those things into instead of the actual um, conversations and different things that need to be had about it. Yeah. So what we're doing today is in essence, uh, it almost works as a trick, but it's an honest trick. We're taking this event, uh, this terrible shooting that Lisa was unfortunately uh, witness to and part of, and we're using that event and the comments that came afterwards of we need to have a mental health conversation to actually have a conversation about mental illness in America. Um, hopefully we can accomplish a few things and enlighten people on some of the just the regularity of mental illness. Um, in researching just for this episode, I learned that 44 million Americans a year suffer from some form of mental illness, and about half of those people don't get any sort of help, and I think a lot of that is because of the stigma that goes along with it. So instead of having that stigma and thinking about the mentally ill as mass shooters and monsters, hopefully in listening to this and listening to Lisa's story, you understand that mentally ill people by a vast, wide, gigantic majority are not violent and they're not people who are posing a risk to you. They're not dangerous. They're they're people that need help and they need to understand that there's help available. And if there's not help available, we need to figure out how to make that help available for them. So tragedies, honestly, like this don't happen. Mm -hmm. There have been 555 mass shootings in the past 514 days. This year alone, there have been 378 mass shootings. And the people perpetrating those shootings, it's almost inarguable, have some form of mental illness. If you were a normal person, you would not do that to other people. But the conversation on mental illness in this country needs to come back to a, a normal person, a person who's working beside you or anybody, your mother, your brother, who is suffering and they're suffering silently because they're afraid that by saying they have something wrong with them, they're going to be grouped in with the people that are committing these atrocities or they're going to be looked at as weak or any of the other stigmas that immediately come along with mental illness that we need to some way work to get rid of. Mm -hmm. So without further ado, here is our conversation a mental health problem at the highest level with Lisa Munoz. And we're good. We're recording. All right. So we kind of just do it conversationally anyway. So basically what we've been doing so far works really well. <laughs> okay. And uh, it seems that the more conversational they are, the, the better they translate over to people, you know? Right. So today we're talking about something that seems to be uh, a lot of people are willing to discuss it because of all the events that have happened in our country as far as mass shootings go. 
and that is the topic of mental illness in America and mental health as a whole. Um, the recent shooting in Texas, uh, the comments that followed it were pretty direct on that topic being covered first and foremost with people saying that this isn't a gun situation. This is a mental health problem at its highest order, and we need to address that first. Um, there's, of course, an argument whether or not that's the logical jump to make or the next step that you should take in this approach of figuring out how to fix this problem. But if people are willing to have that conversation as they're saying they are, then I think that this is a great opportunity to have it. So that's what we're hoping to do today, and we're hoping to talk about really the true state of mental illness in America and what can be done to, to curb something that clearly is a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, so joining us today is Lisa Munoz. So Lisa, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Lisa, unfortunately, it was already 40 days ago um, and you were in Las Vegas at the time of the worst mass shooting in American history. Um, that was the starter for a lot of this conversation, which has started many times and ended rather abruptly and without much conclusion. But even after that, people immediately pointed to mental illness as the thing that needed to be tackled first and foremost. And I don't think that it really was. There wasn't much of a discussion as to the state of mental health in America. There wasn't much talk as to what could be done to curb problems like mass shootings and why they're happening. Um, but everybody jumped to the conclusion that we need to have this conversation. Um, as somebody who is there and somebody with your expertise, I feel like you are a perfect person to have the conversation with. So I'm so happy that you were able to join us today. Thanks. So if you don't mind, could you talk a bit about your experience for us? So the Las Vegas shooting, and it was interesting because one of the things you bring up is mental health came onto the screen pretty quick. But it also left because the focus refocused to gun control. It refocused to how did this person acquire X number of guns. And then we had a huge emphasis on the bump stocks. So, and it's not uncommon. I've been a mental health first aid trainer for five years. And trying to get people to open up and talk about their mental health issues is very difficult. And 90% and of the time when we started training, we start that with the stigma that exists. For me to walk in the door and tell somebody I'm having chest pain or I can't sleep is comfortable to me. But for me to go in and tell them I'm having nightmares, I'm having flashbacks, or I'm panicking so much that I can't function on a day-to-day -day basis, I feel like that's now going to label me as a mental health issue, a mental health case. So Vegas was very similar to that. There was a very clear need to have the conversation, but a very quick removal of that importance so that we could talk about the other things that are sometimes more exciting. Um, unfortunately, I've had many people approach me after the fact and they ask, they ask if I'm okay, but you can see almost the water. I mean, it's the watering of the mouth waiting for all the juicy details of how it went. Um, I was fortunate. I did get hit by a ricochet in my foot, and thankfully I had boots on. Thank God for country boots. Um, <laughs> and I think that's been my way of dealing with it is I processed so much in the heat of the moment that I didn't come out with as much of the aftermath and the what-ifs. Um, I was on the opposite side of the stage from where the first shots hit. 
We saw smoke coming up from the crowd after the second set of gunshots, and that's when I had told my friends we needed to move. And we moved quickly. I tried to get people to move with me. They wouldn't move. A lot of people kept saying it was fireworks. Um, finally, we hit the ground after the second set of real heavy shooting went down. And that's when I got ricocheted in the foot. And I knew I was hit, and it, it felt like electricity radiating straight up into my hip. Um, the way I can explain it now, it's you have a really quickly moving piece of object, whatever it was, and it's translating that force. So I knew I was hit, but I didn't know how bad. And the first thing my friend does is put her head up. And I went, put your head down. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, keep your head down. Um, once the shooting stopped, I, I was watching as that layer of shooting went around. And it was interesting because one of the first things I noticed was that they were coming from an elevated angle. Mm. And a lot of people ask me, do you have military training? And I don't, but I've always been very situationally aware. So when I saw they were coming from an upper angle, I knew at that point we couldn't go down on the floor. Being on the floor was giving you just a blanket of people to shoot at, knowing it was coming from elevations. So we walked and we ran and we, I, every time we went down again after that, we barricaded behind things, um, you know, but you hear a lot about the trampling and, and that's when it started realizing for me it wasn't all trampling each other. It wasn't all trying to get out at any cost of whatever else was happening. I remember a gentleman at the other side of a bar working with me to throw people down behind the bar to try to get more people covered. And at the end, we realized there was no room for us. And we just kind of looked at each other and he ran over and he shielded me. You know, there was just as much of a camaraderie and a willingness to work with one another. But at the same time, you had individuals that were so out of sorts and they didn't know how to respond and unfortunately what mass shootings had always taught us is you you get down right you you run hide fight um in an open corral like that that doesn't work so trying to reorient people trying to help them come to terms with the realities I had one gentleman look at me and say this isn't real this isn't real and I had to physically turn his head to show him a body on the floor to get him to come around to terms that it is real and of course, with me being very centered on mental health, I have concerns about putting somebody through that kind of a harsh reality. But at the time, I need you to process and move. Um, he wanted us to hide behind a chain link fence with a sunshade. And in my head, I'm going, this isn't going to do us any good. That was the point that I felt the shift in the direction of the bullets. I knew they were coming from a different direction. Um, the entire time I ran, going behind the bar, going behind the chain link fence, you could see the dirt gave kick the dust up a whole new meaning, this country song. I got to tell you, every time I hear it, I remember the dust kicking up from bullets hitting the floor. Um, we ran. I finally rounded the corner, thought I was okay, and I called my mom. And I told her, they're shooting, I'm running. And my call was to hopefully get her to be able to answer some questions. Where is this coming from? What do we know? Who has information? And she, of course, asked where. I said the concert. And that's when I looked up and saw that there were windows shot out all around me. So I said, okay, we're not, we're not out of danger yet. Um, I was one of few that I think was able to process at the time and move and do what needed to be done. At that point, I told my girlfriends if they saw any more bullets or heard any more bullets to go down under a car because we were by a parking lot. At that point, I almost got run over by a car, stopping a car to allow people to cross the street. So yes, you did have some of the panic. And then finally, I ran into a gentleman. He was just standing there in shock. He was just the epitome of absolute shock. 
And I ran straight into him, and it was like hitting a brick wall. He didn't move. And I thought, for the second time, I'm going to (laughs) die. This is not going to go well, because I had bullets flying all around. And he came to the realization that we were in danger and ran behind me and put me down behind a pillar, and we listened to everything ricocheting off of the wrought iron fence right around our heads. Now, the way I started that with as much detail as I'm able to give you, and, and then we climbed the wrought iron fence, which was my last point, out of the venue, and more shots were sounding off of the wrought iron when we were going over. At that point, we barricaded inside of another room, at which point I started mental health first aid training, and I started helping people through that crisis. If my memory of all of those moments, when I was on the opposite side of the stage, are so vivid and so realistic, I can only imagine who was on the other side of the stage watching people die, watching people hurt. Um, For me, it really made me realize that there were a lot of people who needed attention and care, and I had a diabetic in the room and an asthmatic in the room. So while I'm dealing with medical concerns and medical issues, I'm equally listening to people watch videos and clips and hearing gunshots and watching people go into mental crisis in front of my eyes. And that's less than 30 minutes, an hour after the the event has occurred. And I had to remind people around the room, you need to turn everything down. Some of us aren't ready to hear those gunshots. You know, I hear a tire uneven running down the road, and it reminds me of the sound of helicopters, which is what I remember hearing. Um, And it makes me stop. I stop. I pause. Coming home and driving through the rain today and hydroplaning, something that I've driven through rain and snow so many times in my life, and it's something that's very comfortable. While I'm doing very well, that lack of control is very concerning to me. Um, It made my heart pound. It made me concerned. Um, Halloween was very tough. (laughs) I can only imagine. I mean, you have everybody dressed up, and we ended up over by a haunted house, and there's... um, hydraulics that were being used so all I hear is and for me that's a very familiar sound now for a very different reason so you know that was kind of my experience um seeing the aftermath within 30 minutes to an hour of the mental health crisis seeing the freezing moments, seeing the moments in the venue itself with people telling me it's not real it's surreal to many and many are still probably trying to recover now you said that um you know we're trained to run hide fight that's like what but it didn't work in this particular instance because of the location that you guys were in do you I mean looking back on the situation is there anything now that you wish you would have known then to help people or that could have better prepared people so I think that the biggest thing is you know doing drills is very important Mm -hmm. even if it is run, hide, fight. But nobody can prepare you as much as giving you the the perseverance and the willingness to critically think. And unfortunately, if you're in a mental health crisis, that's not always there. Mm -hmm. So the stronger people that were capable, and I shouldn't say stronger because everybody processes different. And one of my good friends who was there, one of the first things she said to me was, I'm always the weak one. And it crushed me because that's not true. Um, Her ability to process everything that was going on at that moment was tough. But those of us that were able to be very situationally aware and very aware of our surroundings, 
we move directly to barricading people behind things, moving constantly. Because as a moving target, when you've got somebody from an elevated position, you're better off than laying and sitting still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think running those drills, being able to think through those things, and then trying to add a layer into the drill where maybe you don't know where it's coming from. Maybe you do push somebody to have to critically think in the moment. What if something changed? What if something was different? How would you react? Mm-hmm. A really interesting point that we had started to discuss before we even jumped into actually recording this um, was the idea that everybody jumps to the conclusion that this is a mental health problem. Whenever there's a, a mass shooter, I think that it's almost undeniable that that person who's doing the shooting has some sort of a mental illness. So a normal person functioning at a normal level wouldn't do something that horrible. But when they bring up the idea that this is a mental health problem, it comes back also to the victims of this, and those people seem to be ignored. Um, You had mentioned that there were 22,000 people at that concert, and while that one person who was doing the shooting may have had some sort of a mental illness going on at the time, and it's probably undoubted that he did, the odds of a lot of those 22,000 people who had to bear witness to that terrible event coming away with some sort of a a mental disturbance is really high. And it seems that that's kind of being ignored in this whole thing. I agree. And and we were talking about that. You know, we have 58 dead. You have 500 plus injured. And those numbers have been all over. But the 22,000 was an estimate of how many country concert goers there were. Were they all there at that moment in time? Maybe, maybe not. But Mm -hmm. that's a rough estimate. Mm -hmm. Knowing that I saw a mental health crisis just in multiple individuals in that room with me afterwards, we stayed over. um, My girlfriends were starting to run back to Tropicana, which is where we were staying. Mm -hmm. And my first thought, again, it's that situational awareness. I don't know what's going on and I don't know why we're at where we are right now, but I don't know what else is going to happen. And the last place I want to be is on the strip, Mm -hmm. especially at the four corners of where this event is. So... My decision was I looked to my right and saw the Desert Rose, which is a off-strip resort, timeshare. We went in there. Well, there were about 35 of us bunkered down in a room. And, you know, it's back to that. If you prepare and you know what to do and you have a process and being in management, I think, is part of what gave me that. The first thing I did is get a head count in the room, figure out how many there are, call the front desk, couldn't get a hold of them. So I had my mom call. And my mom was giving me updates from the news. My brother was listening to a radio a police scanner. And my sister-in-law was on social media. So I had a lot of insight and information going on. But I also had a lot of people in that room suffering mental health right then and there. I can only imagine how many more have had it since and how many, like me, are relatively okay. But clearly, I have certain hypersensitivities. Mm-hmm. Um Will that will I be okay the rest of my life? I don't know. Am I actually going to be less okay eight, ten years down the road? And that's what makes it so difficult, you know. Um, the GoFundMe page and and the generosity of people when they have a mass casualty or, or an event that really impacts the hurricanes as of late. We always see such an effort to help people in need. But my question and my challenge is: Aren't we always needing to help people with mental health? Mm-hmm. because it's there. It exists on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And can we do something sooner to prevent some of these 
later onset situations. Right. And with mental health, because it is a bit of a stigma within, you know, that revolves around the issue in America anyways, and I feel like there's a lot of people who kind of deny the seriousness of some mental health issues. I know I know of a few people just like I have relationships with that refuse to acknowledge that depression is an actual issue that you need medication for. Like they think that it's just, oh, well, you just need to stop being sad, you know, or something like that. And I think that because that stigmatization exists around mental health, it kind of, in situations where there is a tragedy, it it doesn't allow us to care for people in the best way that we could. Like, I think if if people had a better understanding of the mental health issues that existed, um, even though definitely people would still have gotten hurt in Vegas, I think that it could definitely help in crisis situations such as that where you're no, you know how to better handle different kinds of people and how to best help people where they're at. You know, and and with that, so one of the pieces in the mental health first aid course we teach, um, there's one activity I love because what it does is it requires you to order um, both physical and mental health issues and, and diagnoses as to how disabling they are. Mm. And it's not uncommon for me to see individuals initially, they will assume that the physical ailments are the most trying and the most disabling. And then we go through and we actually label it based on study statistics. And the top four or five are mental health in nature. So it's really eye-opening for people. And the other thing that I usually add in is when you find out somebody has cancer, you know, it's, oh my God, I'm so sorry for you. When you find out somebody is suffering from PTSD, or depression, Mm -hmm. you don't get the same apologetic feel from people. Um, And I think another thing that really plays into that is the fact that the assumption is, especially with our more um, higher-end diagnoses, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, any of the psychoses, we have a situation where people assume that that person is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And in reality, they're more likely to be harmed than they are to harm someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, We also go into early intervention. The earlier we can intervene, the more likely a better prognosis can come out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's imperative to know. But to be able to intervene early, it takes understanding. And, And that's why Mental Health First Aid came over here. It was originated in Australia. Um, the United States took it on, I think it was during the Obama administration. Michelle Obama was very supportive of it. And it's grown tremendously over the last five, probably eight years or so. And I think it's important. Um, most recently, I actually just went and recertified in public safety. They have a specific module for public safety first aid. And I mean, you get into people being aware. If your police force was aware of how to handle mental health crisis, it would be different than how it was handled in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's the first layer because then beyond just the mental health first aid training, they have crisis intervention teams that will actually be trained and called out in those high-end crises. But we have to get the public aware of it and then get people to realize this isn't just a mass shooter that might become mentally ill. This is something that exists day in and day out with many of the people that we know. Mm-hmm. And how can we shine a light on that and get them the help they need before 
they become that person that's so beyond that early intervention stage that we're now struggling. And we may now make decisions, whether it's hurting someone else or maybe even hurting themselves, and we deal with suicide. It's important to get that knowledge out there early. Yeah. What worries me possibly the most of this whole conversation is the idea that mental health is discussed. It seems the only time it's discussed is in these mass shooting events. And when you discuss something like mental health in context of a mass shooting, the person that you're speaking of, of course, is the shooter which mm-hmm. I think becomes uh, something that works towards the stigma of mental health. The 20-something thousand people who are at that concert may be suffering now, but I feel that it, it drives home the fear that if they say, I'm suffering from a mental illness, the first thing that comes to people's minds is the last person I heard suffering from a mental illness killed 58 people in Las Vegas or 26 people in a Texas church. And that's immediately the association that goes to it, where, mm-hmm. as you said, it's the statistics that I was looking up before we had this conversation, people who suffer from mental illness are 10 times more likely to be victims of violent crimes. And only three to 5% of violent acts carried out in America can be associated to people who have any sort of mental illness. Correct. And I think with um, the way that Hollywood even portrays mental illness is also plays into that a little bit where you have movies like, I mean, the most recent one I can think of is uh, Split. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where it's, oh, somebody who has the split personality or schizophrenia or, you know, those kinds of things, they kidnap people and, you know, hurt people. And I think that that also plays into it is all of the things that are in the public eye, the famous things are negatively portrayed. Correct. I actually um, knew somebody in my past that had split personalities. And, I, you know, the other piece is we tease about it a lot, right? Mm-hmm. We call somebody psycho. And, and that's one of the things using those stigmatizing words is something that as mental health first aiders, we really push people not to use. But I I tease my kids all the time. I said, I have split personalities. That's how I play mom and dad. Mm-hmm. And they laugh, right? But it's it's not a joke. Um, but in all fairness, I knew somebody who had multiple split personalities. And her job, day in and day out, my mom was telling me the story. She knew her better than I did. Day in and day out, she did her work life because one of her split personalities knew how to do it. So it's odd when you think about it in that light, when you think about it in a different way, mental health isn't always bad, right? And and the other thing is just because I'm anxious doesn't mean I may have anxiety. Mm-hmm. Just because I'm depressed for a day doesn't mean I have depression. It's a matter of where on the spectrum am I and am I diagnosable at that point? Can I use self-help strategies to get myself to a better place? Or am I at a point that I need professional help as well? Mm-hmm. And until you're willing to have that conversation, we don't know the answer, right? Um, so it's, it is, it is, and I agree with, with the concept that because we see it as negative in Hollywood, and now the only time it truly comes up is when the one person discussed in that mental health situation is the killer, right? Mm-hmm. When in reality, and I was mentioning the GoFundMe page I actually went through it just more curious to see how the process worked, and I've read up a little bit about it since. One of the biggest decisions they were trying to make is whether or not mental health is covered, and if so, how. And I don't think it's meant to be a a dismissive situation. They have a set amount of money, and of course, there are major hospital bills for especially the shooting victims. And then you've got costs for victims who died and their families. But the other layer there is, 
you may not have any symptoms until 4, 5, 10, 15 years from now. And how do you help that person then? Honestly, and one of the biggest suggestions I received from a friend of mine is you need to go and talk to a crisis counselor. And and I haven't. I thankfully talked to a PA locally who is in the military and still active. So to understand what I was going through, he was very capable of that. And I felt very comfortable talking about it. And I've told him that when and if I feel like I need more, I will let him know. I'm very self-aware just as I'm very situationally aware. But for many people, they're burying it. And maybe there is a policy we need to put in place. Maybe there's something we can do that when an event happens, here's the recommended treatment. We have it for diabetics. We have it for hypertension. What do we have in place for mental health, especially post-stress and post-trauma? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that it just it does way more harm than good to bring up mental health in a conversation. And it's clearly a conversation that needs to be had. But I think that if you ask the average per- anybody on the street, if you said, what do you think of when you think of somebody who has uh, severe mental illness? They would jump to the conclusion that it was somebody that they heard about on the news who did a lot of really terrible things. Somebody right. who committed a mass shooting or did anything like that. And instantly they're a bad guy there. They're mm-hmm. stigmatized and it's somebody that you don't want to be associated with. And if you are suffering from a mental illness, why would you ever want to admit that you're suffering from a mental illness? And that causes you to not seek treatment, I would imagine. Right. You don't want to be known as the person who's going to the doctors once a week to talk about the the mental problem that you're having when everybody thinks that the mental problem is going to cause you to, to shoot people or to do something terrible. Exactly. Uh, my first husband was a Marine, and he actually suffered from post-traumatic stress. At the time, we got married in 2005, so you can imagine how far we've come in mental health since then, especially in our military. In his eyes, there was no reason for him to talk to anybody. There was no conversation to be had. You're a Marine. You deal with it. Our police force is very similar, and and in some cases sees similar things. Um, When you know and, and having been very close to somebody, A, it's really hard. Um, Most men especially, they are more likely to walk into the physician's office and tell them about their physical symptoms. So it's weeding through all the information and the workup to really figure out what's going on. So it's hard for them to talk about it. But on top of that, it's um, it was very stigmatized in certain areas. With me being as close to him as I was, I was very patient and understanding um, to the best of my ability, and I'm sure I wasn't perfect. Because you depend on that person. You depend on that person to be a partner, and you depend on that person to help you through life. So sometimes the people you're closest to, which would be the first person you might open up to, are not the best person for you to open up to because they're counting on you and depending on you in other ways. So it is the public that we need to be aware. It is, you know, your colleagues. If you notice XYZ symptom going on with your colleagues, how do you have that crucial conversation, right? How do you open up that conversation, which is a whole other topic we Mm -hmm. can get into. (laughs) But how do you open those conversations? Mm -hmm. And I think it also, I mean, it goes back to what you said about it's not a weakness, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 
people in the crisis, you said they felt like they were weak, you know, or, or I'm always the weak one or something. I think it's important, an important first step to understand that it's not a weakness to have a mental issue of some sort. I think it's very healthy for people who even don't necessarily have like a mental illness per se. I think everybody should go see a counselor at some point in their life. I think it's just good to have um, that sort of practice to have good mental health, no matter what your situation is. And I don't think it makes you weak because you need to talk to somebody. And I think that that's one thing that really prevents a lot of people. And like you said, like men more often, because I think it, a lot of people just consider, oh, if I open up about my feelings and all of that mushy stuff, then they, you know, they, it's considered a weakness and that's really not what it is at all. Right. Um, and that really goes back to, you know, the upbringing of men, in times before more recent, I mean, I, I'm okay with my son crying. He's 15, but there was a time where as a boy, you don't cry. Mm -hmm. Right. So the way men were raised sometimes was a little different, whereas a girl could show those emotions. So I can see why they have a harder time. Mm -hmm. I can see why they have a harder time expressing themselves and sharing, but you're right. If you had a group, even if it was a support group on campus where you just came together and kind of offloaded, that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. And and it may not need to be an official counselor at the time. But, you know, the other part of that is when you do start seeing problems, how do you ask those tough questions? Mm -hmm. You know, I've had to ask people, are you thinking of killing yourself? That is a very tough question to ask. And the first thing I let everybody know that comes through training with me is when you ask that question, you have to be ready for the yes. And that's terrifying to many people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's all about training. I mean, we don't expect anybody in the world to do anything, including their job, right, without some level of training, some level of understanding. Parenting is probably the hardest because they always say there's no book, right? Mm -hmm. There's no book to tell you how to do it right. But how many times do we go to our parents for advice or our friends, right? We're still learning from others. But suddenly we're expected to tackle this idea of mental health with no training, with mm -hmm. no understanding, with no conversation. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? I think that definitely is a reason why most people just don't bring it up because they think, well, okay, I know that this is probably going on and I could ask these questions, but what do I do when they say yes? Mm -hmm. I don't know what, you know, what resources to give that person or how to tell them to walk through it or anything. Um like that at all and so I think that kind of scares people away for it whereas even though they may recognize the problem and don't necessarily think it's like a weakness and they do genuinely want to help they just don't know how so they remain silent mm. yeah and, and I, go ahead it's strange that that's such an issue because of all the the diseases and all the things that affect people's lives it seems that mental illness is one of the most common I mean again just reading up and researching this whole idea Close to 20% of Americans suffer from some form of mental illness every single year. And more than half of those people don't get any sort of treatment because I imagine there's no, they don't think of an avenue to get that treatment because the conversation isn't had. And I think it could be not knowing how what avenue to go down to get treatment. I think another piece of that is this is just my norm, right? This is how I am. This is normal. Um, within that 20% or so that are suffering... You also have many occurrences of comorbid disease. Um, some of your biggest ones, substance abuse, right? Substance abuse often can be, it's the chicken or the egg concept. Is it causing the mental health disorder that this individual is suffering, suffering from? Or 
are we self-medicating to alleviate the stress and the feelings that we're experiencing? And I think it's a little bit of both. But if I can't recognize that my norm is the same norm that everybody else may experience, and I can't normalize the mental health suffering that I'm experiencing, how do I seek treatment? How do I even know to, right? And to go back to what you brought up, Cassie, uh, Cassidy, I almost said Cassie. <laughs> you got a nickname for me. <laughs> um, one of the things that you brought up was the idea that individuals are, you know, you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I've mentioned as I, I, we just, funny enough, I had just gotten back from Vegas on the second, I, the third. Um, I had a mental health first aid training that I had to teach that Friday. (laughs) What are the odds? I had not taught a course long enough that I had to be recertified. And I had one that was a two-day course. So I taught half of it on Friday and half the following Friday. And I had another one that I taught that following Saturday. So this was matter- your first return to teaching this course. It was. That- wow. And it was in a week, less than a week after the shooting, I was teaching my first course. I finished it up two weeks later and taught a second one two weeks later. And the second one was with student affairs, um, SGA government, upper leadership type individuals. And they've already approached me and said, we want more. We want to offer more. And I've said, you know, I want to help, but we need to keep it manageable so that because I can only teach 30 at a time. So who are we reaching to first? But what I've shared with all of them is even if you're not comfortable yet offering that assistance, know that I'm here. Mm-hmm. Know that you have other individuals. We've got a, people, a couple people over in Washington State University Pharmacy that are certified mental health aid, first aid, instru- not instructors, but providers. So we have people around that can initialize that conversation. So I think sometimes even if you don't know what to do, maybe knowing where to go and who to talk to mm-hmm. is a great first step until we get more knowledge base here on our campus or anywhere else. And that would be the question I would encourage everybody to ask. If I'm concerned, who do I go to? Mm-hmm. Who can I share this with confidentially? knowing that this person may not be comfortable with me sharing this with you, who can I talk to? Because that's a great first step. Mm. It's it's an issue too because without treatment, there's so many harmful side effects on society as a whole. Um, almost 25% of the homeless population has or suffers from some form of mental illness. Mm-hmm. And then coming back to the idea of the the spur of this whole conversation with getting people to tune in and have the conversation based on these shootings. In the past 514 days, there have been 555 mass shootings, which of course is one of the most extreme measures that you could reach if you were suffering from a mental illness. But 90% of people who commit suicide suffer from some form of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it all, it seems that those people are going untreated and that lack of treatment is really having terrible effects on everybody really it is and and i think that's where that earlier intervention really comes in and you know in my eyes the way to get there um primary care takes a real bulk and that's something that's central to our mission here at pnwu primary care takes a bulk of the initial visits with individuals who may be suffering mental illness but equally i can say from back when i was in medical school and i was training to be a physician 
I can't say that I got trained well on how to approach that topic. Yeah, I learned psychiatry. Yes, I did a rotation in psychiatry. But did I really know how to initialize that conversation? And your primary care is such a broad catchment that have to handle so many different disease processes. Are they really ready and prepared to be have those, be having those conversations? And, and that's a question that, you know, I don't know that we have the answer to that yet. How do we integrate a heavier curriculum within our medical professions and not just DOs, MDs, docs? I think all of our primary care providers, our nursing staff often see it first, our, our MAs at the front office, your receptionist can sometimes pick up on key things. For me, even if they're not trained in how to handle it, if you have a protocol within your office, if you notice these things, here's who you notify, here's who you talk to. That works in a physician's office, it works at a school environment, it works in an office environment. Here's the protocol, here's what to watch for, and here's who to talk to. You know, and that might be a good first layer deciding do we need to go further, do we need to get more people trained to intervene? Mm. One of my worries, too, in starting this conversation is trying to find a place where there's an effective system in place. Because looking back, at least I was just concentrating on our country as a whole. Mm -hmm. But if you look into the early 20th century, treatment for people who had mental illnesses was completely inhumane and terrible. And then when that treatment was done away with, it didn't seem like it really got any better. I mean, of course, it wasn't as bad as that inhumane treatment was, but the people that needed help still weren't getting the help. And it seems that they're still not getting the help today. Are there examples that you've seen or places that you know of that have an effective system that we could maybe replicate or take notes from or... I don't, and I, mm. I would say I could definitely look and see what are our options because I think that we're on such an early end of trying to get this out there. And if you would go back to the inhumane days, um, there was very much a time where if you were mentally ill, you were locked away. Mm. That is what happened. And when it was judged as inhumane, the decision was that, that can't happen anymore. But my question is, what was put in place to protect that? Mm. And I don't know that anything was. When individuals, whether by choice, voluntarily go and become inpatient or are forcibly becoming inpatient, it's only temporary. And with the, the stress and strain on our medical system, like everywhere else, they can only be in there for so long mm -hmm. unless they're outside of a hospital structure and in a treatment-type facility. Um, do we have enough treatment facilities? Do we have enough places for them to go? And, and if they're not successful, what are we doing to try to help them? What is in place to do that before they become homeless, before they become a member of society that's no longer functioning? And, and I like that when we teach mental health first aid and we teach about mental health illness, it's a matter of improving functioning. And for what that might look like for me in comparison to somebody else with PTSD, it may be very different. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter if my functioning is different than your functioning. We both suffer from PTSD, and this is where I feel capable getting to. This is my best level of functioning. If we can get people to higher functioning and being able to be positive members in society, we're going to minimize a lot of those mental health concerns and issues. But we also have to reduce that stigma first to be able to be willing to reach out and help. Mm. Because if you saw... 
a homeless individual on the side of the road. And I think many of us have seen, and me being from California originally, I have definitely seen plenty of homeless people on the side of the road swatting and batting at things, having Mm -hmm. conversations with somebody that so far as I can see is not there. Mm -hmm. But would I be willing to stop and pull over on the side of the road to help them? I think the answer for most people would be absolutely not. Correct. Mm -hmm. And I think that that plays into the stigma, of course, but there's also a level of just that's common sense that you wouldn't stop and try to help somebody like that because how can you help them? Right. But that's where the question comes in of how can you truly help those people? And there is help, but getting an avenue for that help seems how do we get them there? Mm -hmm. And, And it brings up an interesting point because oftentimes what happens, a police officer is called, the police officer goes out, and before there was as much of a light on mental health, if a person's swinging as you're trying to get them to listen to you and you're trying to get them under control and contain them, what are you going to do? You're going to take them down with force because, in all fairness, their job is to protect themselves first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're dealing with something like a psychosis with auditory hallucinations, as an example, can you imagine having a voice inside your head 24-7? If you had somebody giving you instruction and telling you to get down or to put your hands behind your back, would you comply? And it may not be because you don't want to. It may be because you can't. And you can't understand what they're saying. So that's where the knowledge, the how do we do this. Um, this is the part that my mother would have a, a heart attack because I have stopped. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and why? Because I feel comfortable enough knowing, A, my surroundings at the time and where I was, and B, trying to have that conversation and open that dialogue. And see, if I'm going to encourage others to stop the stigma, don't I have to stop first? Because I'm not a do as I say, not as I do kind of person, which is why it was so terrifying to her when I said, they're shooting, I'm running. Mm. Because, you know, when I finally made it home, one of the first things she told me is, I know you. And I said, and what do you mean? She says, I know that when everybody else is running away, you're running in. And when you told me you were running, I knew either you were running into danger or the danger was so severe that you were running away and I can't even fathom that for you. And I understood. But me being willing to stop and and have a conversation with a homeless man. And, you know, ultimately there was a shelter up the road that I contacted. And and you brought up a great point earlier. Who do we call? Mm -hmm. Who are our resources? Part of the mental health first aid training requires you to have your local resources on hand. At the time, I was working with a local resource, so I was able to call them, and I was able to let them know what the situation was, and we were able to get him help rather than me calling in to the police officer who's going to call it a 5150 and come out and take him down with force in many cases simply because they have to watch out for their own safety, Mm -hmm. right? So it's hard, you know, but I think it takes that willingness for people to step out of their comfort zone to step into a zone of worrying more about the other person than yourself. But equally, you have to do that while assessing your surroundings and your situation, which is why, yes, with the homeless man, I helped him. But with a mass shooting, when I see him coming from elevated positions, I can't run back in. I have to get out because there is no way for me to help in a safe manner. 
at that time. And I think that's called being situationally aware. Yeah. To go back to the point of trying to figure out where this the break started to happen, um, just trying to figure that out myself in this conversation because I've heard the stories and I've read the the exposés on that inhumane treatment that's kind of started with the mental illness centers. And um, in my reading, in 1962, President Kennedy signed the Community Mental Health Act. And unfortunately, he was assassinated just, I think, two weeks later. But the idea of it was to get those people out of those inhumane centers that were basically just locking them away and calling them crazy and to put them in community health centers. And I think he called them community, yeah, community mental health centers. And those community mental health centers would be funded by the federal government and they would help people within their communities to kind of come to terms with the issues that they were facing and figure out how to live their best lives. Um, so they deinstitutionalized all these terrible places. But then the people who were no longer in these institutions didn't have anywhere to go because those places never got funded. Right. And it seems that that has just snowballed into what we have today of a whole bunch of people who need treatment don't have not only access to treatment, but the knowledge that they really do need the treatment that they mm. so desperately need. Or the funds mm -hmm. to right. pay for treatment, you know. Right. And and as an example, when I was down in California, Pomona, um, all of my mental health first aid courses were funded by Tri-Cities, an organization that focused on mental health because they had received grant funding. So it's there. Is it enough? I can't answer that. Um, but I know it's there. And, and their whole goal is to increase awareness of what's going on. Other institutions or organizations that you have are like NAMI, which is a national organization that works specifically with mental illness. Um, my training when I went back uh, for my training this time in public safety was actually run through a NAMI-based organization. So they exist. Are they getting all the help they need? Do people even recognize that they exist? Maybe not. And, you know, Tri-Cities, they had a community-based center where individuals could go and they could talk to counselors and they could talk to peer counselors who or certified peer specialists who had actually lived their life. So they could say, hey, I was addicted to drugs. I was suffering from schizophrenia and I'm now medicated and functional in society. And I now spend my life helping others. It was a great place to go. But it was probably better suited for higher functioning individuals because it was a community-based environment. The large percentage of our individuals that are suffering greater mental illness, I think, unfortunately, still end up in an inpatient and often involuntary inpatient situation, which is temporary. They get stabilized. And then they may or may not have the community support when they come out of the hospital to maintain their medications. Like I mentioned before, being, you know, a spouse of somebody suffering, it's a lot. It's a lot. And unfortunately, because of the lack of care that they receive, whether it's voluntary, involuntary, lack of knowledge, whatever reason, but they're not being treated, they often end up isolating from family. So they don't have their own support network. They don't have somebody to help them remember to take the medications. So where is that next layer? If you don't have a support structure at home, in medicine we hear this all the time, if there's no support structure, we need to make sure we offer them one. Well, what do we offer? What's there? 
back to the uh, the original framing of this conversation in in an odd way sort of the way that i imagine we're going to hook a lot of listeners is that captivating element of this terrible tragic event happening and people wanting to hear details of why that event happened especially in the context of mental illness as somebody who has the experiences that you've had when you unfortunately so often these days see on the news that there's another event and it seems that it's just a a rinse and repeat of somebody making the comment of this isn't this issue we have to talk about mental illness and that's our biggest problem and we need to tackle that what do you think when you hear things like that and if you had the opportunity to to actually have a conversation a dialogue what would you say to somebody who's saying this is our biggest problem and we need to talk about it i would say that we need to talk about it when it's not just a mass shooting i would say that it's a bigger deal and we need to be careful like we mentioned before not to frame it so that we create a bigger stigma. Every person that suffers mental illness, I will likely be one of those the rest of my life, can be fully functioning in a full capacity. I'm, you know, I work in simulation. I love what I do. But I may suffer the rest of my life from mental illness. And the question I have is, when are we going to have that dialogue? Not because of a mass casualty. Not because of an event that makes the front line of the news. And when are we actually going to sit down and get beyond just having the conversation and actually come to some action items of where we need to go next? We've got organizations trying to do it. Um, The National Council of Behavioral Health is where we do our mental health first aid trainings through. When I contacted them because I realized I hadn't ordered books, they actually overnighted them for, for free for me. But the first question they asked me is, are you okay you know, and how often do you get that from somebody you serve for as a volunteer, as an employee? That might not always be the first question they ask. Their first question was, are you okay? Are you sure you're ready to do this? And I said, to me, it's actually a little bit therapeutic in a way to be able to talk about it. So yes, I'm okay. He also asked me to check back in with him after the event. And I did. I shared with him how it went how well received it was. Um, you know, those are those are hard conversations to have with somebody when you know that they've suffered from something that's very difficult. But we can't just start the conversation when a mass shooting happens or a mass casualty or something else and focus it on the one person that may have suffered or multiple people if there's multiple shooters who suffered a mental illness and therefore had a psychotic break which is how we would typically hear it, and that's more that stigmatizing language. We need to talk about the victims that came out of it. We need to talk about the people that we're already sitting about 20%. And if we were at 20%, those are probably older stats. And we've now had 550-some mass shootings in 514 days. How many are we really seeing now? 